Hey there, everybody. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode 79, and today we're talking about help syndrome. Before we get into that, I want to share with you a study tip from a gal who left a review on Apple Podcasts. So for our listener shout out today, it's ABMR3 who writes that this is great for studying. Currently a nursing student about to start clinicals, but in an accelerated master's program. And these podcasts have been so helpful. Study tip. Take notes on your professor's lecture, find episodes on relevant topics, then go back through your notes and integrate the two. It's helped me immensely. I think that is an excellent study tip. Thank you so much for sharing it. And best of luck to you in your accelerated master's program. You need all the luck in the world. (laughs) You're going to do great, though. I know you are. Okay, a few weeks back, guys, we talked about preeclampsia. And one of the complications of preeclampsia is HELP syndrome. So this is a life-threatening condition that occurs during the later stages of pregnancy and can even occur um, after giving birth. It has a really high mortality rate up to about 30%, and it is characterized by severe blood and liver dysfunction. So the H stands for hemolysis. The EL stands for elevated liver enzymes. And the LP stands for low platelets. So it's HELP as in H-E-L-L-P syndrome. Hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. So when we're looking at a patient who has HELP syndrome... We classify that according to how severe their thrombocytopenia is. So how low are their platelets? When a patient has class one HELP syndrome, this is severe. And that will be with the platelet count under 50,000. Then we have class two, which is considered more moderate. That's your platelet count between 50 and 100,000. And then class three is considered mild with platelets between 100,000 and 150,000. So what are the signs and the symptoms of HELP syndrome? So your patient with HELP syndrome may have a lot of bleeding, and so this would be due to those low platelets. Note that bleeding can occur in the liver as well, which makes it incredibly serious, very life-threatening. So when you're looking at a patient who has bleeding, I want you to be aware of bleeding that occurs in places like seeping around their IV site. Is their IV site just kind of oozy? Maybe their gums are even a little bleedy. So just being aware that um, it's not always um, so obvious. Um, They could have internal bleeding and that you wouldn't really see, but they would have a drop in blood pressure probably. They would have an increase in their heart rate probably. Also possibly a drop in their O2 saturation level, their fatigue, their shortness of breath. So a lot of different signals that your patient could be bleeding. So we need to pick up on those. Patient could have abdominal pain, especially in the right upper quadrant, which is due to that liver Uh, getting involved. 
Shoulder pain. Now, if your patient's complaining of shoulder pain, like um, on their scapula around that area, this is referred pain. And if you haven't learned about referred pain yet, um, you will. And one of the reasons for this is that there's dermatomes in the body and pain that originates somewhere else can be actually felt in another part of the body. So you'll see this a lot with gallbladder disease and with the liver being distended, inflamed, damaged here in the patient with HELP syndrome. The patient could also have neurological abnormalities. So maybe they're suddenly complaining that they have blurry vision or some kind of vision change. They've got a headache. They've had a seizure. Oh no, that would be a very late sign. Hope that you catch it before you get there. And these signs can all be due to things like hypertension. They could have cerebral edema or even a cerebral hemorrhage, again, due to low platelets and bleeding. They could have edema. They could have pulmonary edema and difficulty breathing. They may be nauseous, maybe vomiting. Their blood pressure could be high. Their blood pressure could be low. It really just depends on um, if they're bleeding a lot, the blood pressure is going to be low. If their blood pressure is high, this is, you know, it's just kind of that continuum of that preeclampsia, eclampsia picture. And then they could have protein in the urine. So what tests are you going to anticipate the MD or the nurse practitioner or the PA ordering for your patient who you suspect has HELP syndrome? Well, one of those is a CT scan, and that can show that the liver is bleeding or distended in some way. Getting a CBC to check for a platelet count will be incredibly helpful and a hemoglobin and a hematocrit. Liver enzymes, so your AST, your ALT. A urinalysis could tell you if there's protein in the urine. You want to check a blood pressure, make sure they're not hypertensive, or if they're bleeding so much, they've become hypotensive. And a little word about blood pressure, and you're, when you're looking at when you want to be concerned for a patient... Let's say your patient's blood pressure is 105 over 62, and you're thinking, wow, that sounds like a great blood pressure. But for the past six months, it's been 170. So do you think 105 is okay now? So you really just have to kind of look back at their trend, what their baseline is, and a sudden abrupt decrease in blood pressure is very bad news for your patient. Um, it can cause... Um, hypoxia in the brain because the brain is not getting perfused adequately and it could be a sign that they are bleeding somewhere. So you want to be always investigating trends as diligently as you would just any abnormal. So even though it's not technically abnormal, the trend is abnormal. So checking their blood pressure, very important here. The baby may get a little ultrasound and some fetal heart rate monitoring to make sure that they are okay as well. So the complications of HELP syndrome, um, this can be fatal, guys. If left untreated, it often is. Um, even with treatment, has a high mortality rate, again, of around 30%. So some of these complications are DIC, which is disseminated intravascular coagulation. So this is a blood clotting disorder. 
that can occur with HELP syndrome. In DIC, your prothrombin time, your activated partial thromboplastin time, and your fibrinogen levels are all increased. So patients with DIC basically have tiny little blood clots that develop throughout the entire bloodstream. And these block those tiniest blood vessels. Eventually, all the platelets, all the clotting factors get used up, and now we have excessive and uncontrolled bleeding. So DIC, think of it as clotting and massive bleeding, basically simultaneously, more or less. Um, It's very scary, and you need to catch it early. One of the signs that you might see with DIC is petechiae, those little red dots on the skin. Okay, so be on the lookout for that. Another complication of HELP syndrome is liver failure. The liver can bleed, it can even rupture. So liver failure is huge. Cerebral hemorrhage can occur from that thrombocytopenia, especially in the presence of hypertension. So um, I've taken care of a lot of patients with thrombocytopenia. And typically... Like I've taken care of oncology patients with platelet counts so low, I'm about to have a coronary and the oncologist is like, oh, it's okay. We'll give a little bit of platelets and they'll be fine. I'm highly nervous. (laughs) And then um, because it's just not something I see all the time that low. But if my patient's at 50 or below and they've got hypertension, I'm going to be very diligent about treating their blood pressure and assessing for any neurological changes because the cerebral hemorrhage can occur so much more easily when blood pressure is high and platelets are low. And then other complications include that pulmonary edema we mentioned earlier, kidney failure can occur, and even placental abruption can occur. And then we also don't want to forget about the complications for baby if there is a premature birth and emergent delivery is necessary. So that brings us to how is HELP syndrome actually treated? So in many cases, that's the imminent delivery of the baby, and that typically resolves symptoms. Um, Mom may need things like blood products, platelets, plasma, RBCs, clotting factors, uh, things like that to replace blood volume and combat um, the thrombocytopenia that occurs. If the patient's having the seizure, it's basically um, treated kind of the same way as it is with that eclampsia, preeclampsia, um, anti-seizure medications, magnesium is given to prevent seizures, medications to treat the hypertension like we just mentioned, and mom may receive a corticosteroid, which is given to help baby's lungs mature and prevent respiratory complications in baby if they're born too early. So that is a short, sweet quick look at HELP syndrome. And again, let's go through what the letters stand for. So H is for hemolysis. EL is for elevated liver enzymes. And LP is for low platelets. So if you think about those three things, the blood and the liver, you can kind of think through what problems your patient could have and ways that you can try to um, mitigate them. And then maybe they'll deliver and hopefully cross fingers, mom and baby are both fine. Okay, so guys, this week, actually next week, 
On the 9th, Crucial Concepts opens up, and I've been talking about it for the past few weeks because if you are entering nursing school, this is for you. And in this course, I created it because I just got so, I got overwhelmed, I guess, seeing all the incoming first semester students that are absolutely blindsided by the reality of nursing school, like um, not really studying the right way or not knowing how to study. Like you may have to study for nursing school in a completely different way than you studied for, say, um, your microbiology class or whatever. Not knowing how to study. A lot of the issue with that is the vast amounts of information that you need to study for your exams. I was um, in a Facebook conversation with some gals who were just absolutely gobsmacked with how many chapters were on their first exam. And we're not talking about a first exam that's six weeks into the semester. We're talking about a first exam that was like at the end of their second week. And one student had 16 chapters and another had, I think, 30. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely insane. So that is one of the things that students are just so overwhelmed with. A lot of times they're just not able to manage their time well. And there's a lot of different reasons for um, for why students are overwhelmed. And in those first few weeks of school, you're learning so, so much. I can't even emphasize the information overload that will be happening in your brain. And if you've been through it and you you know what I'm talking about, um, I'm sure you agree with me. So there's a lot of key concepts that your instructors want you to understand and assimilate into all of your nursing school classes and your clinicals. And they may mention them. They may breeze right past them. They may just supply you with a handout. They may not mention them at all, but they are absolutely core things that if you can start your program already understanding or at least having an introduction to them, when your instructor presents it or a situation presents where you can use one of these key concepts, you're not starting from ground zero every single day. So in this course, in Crucial Concepts, you're going to learn how to talk like a nurse. So professional communication is absolutely key for patient safety, absolutely key. And understanding what other people are talking about is key to you knowing what's going on with your patient. So uh, before classes even start, you're going to learn medical abbreviations. You're going to learn medical terms. You're going to learn how to call a doctor in the middle of the night to tell her that you're concerned about a patient. You're going to learn what the different types of nursing notes are that you'll be expected to write and how to give end of shift reports that makes you look professional and competent and on top of your game. So talk like a nurse, first component of crucial concepts and highly important. You'll learn to think like a nurse. So this is critical thinking, clinical judgment, the nursing process. What's a nursing diagnosis? So many students who started the semester, you know, in what month are we in now? We're in, I'm recording this in October, even though you're listening to it in November, but it's, we're like midway almost. No, I'm sorry. I'm recording this now in November. I don't even know what month it is. Um, November, like the first part of November. And at this point in the semester, 
you would think students would be able to understand how to write a nursing diagnosis, but they're tricky and teachers just don't spend a lot of time on this. And so I'm going to teach you how to write a nursing diagnosis and understand what they are and um, how to learn from clinical experiences so that as you move forward and you gain more clinical experience, you can start learning from past experience and applying it to future situations. So that's how you'll learn to think like a nurse. And you'll also learn how to act like a nurse. And module three is all about your clinical rotations and how you're going to respond to vital signs. Even if right now you've never taken anyone's blood pressure, including your own, I'm going to give you a little bit of background knowledge so that you can at least have it in your head, what's normal, what's abnormal, what requires immediate attention, what am I going to do? You're going to learn an approach to writing care plans, which is another big pain point for nursing students. And just responding to a variety of clinical scenarios. What if your patient codes? What if my patient deteriorates? All those what ifs. I'm going to give you some good solid tips and advice. So after module three, you will be ready for anything in the clinical setting. Module four teaches you how to calculate like a nurse. This is your dosage calculations module that will teach you one method for doing every kind of dosage calculations problem with 100% accuracy every single time. So if you aren't aware of this yet, when you get into nursing school, either every semester or at least in the very beginning, you have to pass a dosage calculations exam. Most schools require a 100% score. Some give you a little bit of slack on that. Most schools will let you retake it, but only a certain number of times. And I've heard time and time again from students who've been through my course that walking into that, knowing it was going to be a breeze, was absolutely just confidence building, took the stress away. They passed their exam while many and maybe even most of their classmates struggled, failed, and had to retake the exam. So in module four, you'll learn how to calculate like a nurse. And then in module five, you'll learn how to learn like a nurse. So in this module, we'll talk through a tried and true study method that's going to help you focus on the must-know information so you can study a lot more efficiently, a lot more effectively. You'll learn some strategies for conquering NCLEX-style questions, which are a another huge pain point for nursing students, and getting a little test day strategy together so that you can reduce anxiety and boost your confidence. So that's module five. And then in module six, you'll learn how to review like a nurse. So in module six, we're going to be looking back at some core things from your anatomy and physiology class that if you review them in the right uh, framework, like in a nursing framework, it's really going to help you grasp some complex nursing school topics. So I really want you guys to be able to go from merely memorizing information to really understanding it so you can apply it. And that's what review like a nurse is going to help you do. We're going to look back at things like acid base balance, all the factors that influence blood pressure, fluid balance, the roles of electrolytes, things like that, like core knowledge that will really help you grasp a lot of concepts. And then in the final module, module seven, you'll learn how to prepare like a nurse. And in this one, we're going to talk about what supplies you need to prepare you for nursing school, how to get yourself, your life organized, tips to master your busy schedule, and a method for conquering all your nursing school 
paperwork. So that is Crucial Concepts Boot Camp, you guys. Um, Elizabeth says, this course was offered the same week I was accepted to nursing school and it helped alleviate the anxiety that set in while I waited for classes to start. So thank you, Elizabeth, for that. And Lorraine says, this class has helped me tremendously. It's really increased my confidence with going into nursing school. I feel like I can accomplish this. And when people tell me things like that, I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I want to boost your confidence. I want you to feel like this is something that you can do. And I want to give you tools to use so that you can apply them and not just survive nursing school, but really thrive in your nursing school program. So it's going to open on the 9th. And I want you to get on the wait list for that. If you're the type of person who tends to forget things like me, and if you don't write it down, it doesn't happen, I will send you a happy little email as a reminder on the 9th to let you know that the enrollment is open. And I will try to include a little bonus in there for you guys. So for people that get on the wait list, little extra bonus coming your way, something, I'll have to think about what it is, but it'll be worth your while, I promise. So getting on the wait list Go to straightanursingstudent.com, click on boot camp in the top nav bar, and it will take you right to the information page and then the little form to get on the wait list. And I promise I won't email you 5,000 times for the rest of your life. It will just be for that, uh, that announcement that the course is open. So thank you guys so very, very much. I uh, hope that this was helpful for you as well. And next week, we're going to be talking about debriefing after clinical and how that can help you probably more than anything else learn from your clinical experiences and apply what you're learning to future situations. Because really, as a student, you have so much book knowledge, you guys. Like, you know things that I have learned and forgotten. You're like, surprised I even ever knew it. And you'll be so book smart by the time you graduate. Even by the like middle of first semester, you're going to know details about so many things you'll just be you'll just be a walking encyclopedia but what is lacking is clinical experience and clinical knowledge so i want you to really value your clinical experiences because they're short they're short and sweet guys taking everything that you learn in clinical and those key learning moments and really debriefing on them will help you take that information and apply it next time. And that's what builds your clinical competency. That's what builds your ability to make sound clinical decisions. And like when I became a nurse and I knew I had a lot of book knowledge, but to see how much clinical knowledge I had to gain was humbling. And the way I learned was by really thinking about what happened to my patient. What did I see? What did I do? How did the patient respond? few other things as well mixed into that. And then thinking, okay, next time a patient does X, I'm going to do this and really applying that moving forward. And that's what develops your nursing practice. So we're going to be talking about that next week and also just how keeping a journal, um, a career journal can help you with your nursing career and your long-term goals and happiness. So check back in next week for that and I'll see you then. Have a great day guys. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.